if you're anything like me when you go into the grocery store, you don't give a second thought about how anything got there. Like, I just go there, expect things to be there, I see new stuff, I'm like, oh, that's cool. But there's so much work, obviously, that goes on behind the scenes, and we get a really good behind-the-scenes look of what it's like to be an entrepreneur in the food industry and start your own food company. I talked to Allie Bonar of Oat House. It's a granola butter company, and if you haven't heard of granola butter, it is amazing. It's like an alternative to nut butter, and it is completely nut-free. So for anybody who goes to a school that's nut-free or your house is not free, you should definitely check it out and listen in today to hear the whole behind-the-scenes story with Allie, who really opened up to us about the emotional reasons why she started the company in the first place and what it's been like to be an owner of a company. I'm Casey Barnes of Mominos Nutrition, and This started as a podcast to really help you with feeding your toddlers because that's a lot of what the work I do is about, but I decided it was more fun to just talk to different people and get them on here and have fun conversations, still answer your questions too, but just, you know, diversify a little bit more. So let me bring on Allie. Hey Allie, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I am pumped to talk to you here. I think that I've known you now for, it feels like years now, just online because you used to be queen with a K and now y'all are oat house. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I know we've had, uh, we've had many evolutions, I think. And it's funny looking back to, you know, at the earlier, right when we started, like even just the earlier labels and stuff and just being like, oh my gosh, why did I think that was okay to like (laughs) put that on a jar and sell like it just I don't know it's like your first iteration is always so bad and I know people feel that with everything that they do but I it is nice to kind of see okay we have come you know we've evolved a little bit (laughs) from where we started totally have you totally have so I would love for us to talk today about Oat House and how it came to be and just like the whole process of being a smaller food company like not general mills, you know, it's just like such a different kind of thing to start today. So first, just tell us a little bit about you and like how you even decided I'm going to start this food company. I know. I know. So random. Um, (laughs) What's funny about the whole thing is I have always loved food my whole life, but I never in my wildest dreams thought I was going to start or own a food company. I actually was pre-med in college, which is a joke now because I hate blood. I hate sick people. (laughs) I hate hospitals. Like I was just, it was so driven by, by fear, honestly, of like, you know, when you're in college and you're just like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, sort of a quarter life crisis. And like, well, if I become a doctor, like that's a very stable, predictable path, which is also ironic and hilarious because being an entrepreneur is what I chose. And that's like the opposite of predictable and stable. But no, the idea for granola butter came out of my eating disorder recovery. So I was a nutrition student in college as I was also doing my pre-med stuff, which just goes to show I was a little, you know, there was a little screw loose there. (laughs) I, I was a little perfectionist. And as I was studying nutrition, I just kind of, I got deeper and deeper into this hole, really, you know, this obsession with eating perfectly clean all the time. And for people who don't know the term orthorexia, I don't know if your audience is familiar with that, but 
it's basically an obsession with eating, you know, perfectly clean or, you know, eating certain types of foods. And so for me, there was, you know, certain foods that were good and certain foods that were bad. And then I tie that morality to, you know, myself. So it's like, if I ate a certain way, I was a good person. Or if I ate a certain way, I was bad and I had to, you know, burn it off the next day. And it was just really this toxic mental (laughs) prison that I had created for myself. And, and that really, you know, plagued me for over a decade. And I struggled with, you know, not only that, but also binge eating as a result of that, because I was just so fixated on the types of foods I could and couldn't have. And, you know, I wasn't fueling my body adequately really. And so I, you know, kind of biologically rebelled and started to overeat and binge. And, and then also I had, I struggled with overexercising and sort of like using that as a means to quote unquote, like burn off what I ate. And so I really, yeah, I was, as you can tell, like, I mean, I'm just exhausted telling you this, like it was, it was, very all consuming. And I think, yeah, as a nutrition student, the the ironic part of it was also, you know, my friends in college were just like, oh, she's the healthy one. She's the nutrition student. And so I was able to kind of, you know, slide by and fly under the radar. And I also, because I was binge eating and restricting, I, I didn't really, you know, I would fluctuate in weight, but I basically, I looked the same. Like I didn't look like someone who had an eating disorder. And I think that's something people are starting to learn and realize is that eating disorders don't have a look. And it's not just this stereotypical, you know, frail underweight woman that you kind of learn about in textbooks growing up. And so again, like that also made me feel like I wasn't able to get help or I didn't deserve help because I was like, well, clearly I'm not doing it well enough. Like, you know, I'm still, I look the same. (laughs) And so, you know, there was even periods where, because I was binge eating so much, I was gaining weight and I was like, ah, this is just, this is not, you know, I'm like failing at this eating disorder is kind of how I felt. So it was, yeah, just a lot, a lot of uh, toxicity in that period of my life. And so I graduated, I went to college in the Bay area, graduated, I was working in tech in San Francisco and really just, I was tired. Like mentally, I was just so drained and so over this disorder, but I didn't know how to get out. Like I was so deep in that hole and I knew I needed to make a change, but I just didn't know which way was up. You know, I didn't know where to go, where to start. And for people listening who have never struggled with food, you know, it just, you can't even relate, but for people who have, you're like, I get it. (laughs) And it's just, you know, you're so stuck in these like food rules. Actually, right before we came on and recorded, I was, I'm doing stories for our Oat House account. And I recorded these stories because it reminded me I was making lunch this morning and it was like, you know, 1145 AM, like an earlier lunch. And I just, it like triggered something in me that I remembered, you know, when I was struggling with food, like I would never allow myself to eat lunch before noon. Like I had all of these food rules around meal times. So that was just like an example that came up for me that was just so deeply ingrained, you know, or like no eating after 8 PM, like all of these rules that to me now sound just like odd. And I can't believe I ever followed them, but we also like would read about them. I feel like in 17 magazine or health magazine, like they would promote that kind of thing back then. They really would. Yeah. And and so you think it's like, oh, this must be, you know, the answer. And so, yeah. And I, I don't think like looking back, yeah, right now it feels odd that I ever believed that, but also it's like, that's what I knew. And, you know, you can't kind of fault your, your past self for that. So anyways, long story short, I knew I needed to make a change. So I started working with this uh, nutritional therapist who really changed my life. And, you know, she really just taught me like, 
you know, listening to my body, listening to my hunger and fullness cues, essentially food freedom, you know, the principles of intuitive eating, all of that. But it was so new to me. It was like, oh, you know, I remember going out to eat and like, I didn't even have cravings for food because I would like squash and ignore the cravings before they even like came up. So she was like, you know, when you go out to eat, like just scan the menu and kind of, you know, pick something that calls to you and sounds good. And I was like, what? Like that was so foreign to me because I would just automatically go for the healthiest thing on the menu. I wouldn't even think like, what do I want? It would, that is so insane. Just basic, basic. So I was unlearning, unlearning all of this stuff and sort of coming back to this place. Like I was when I was a kid. And, and that's really where the Genesis and the mission of Oat House began was, you know, creating something that brought the fun and play and joy back into eating, which, you know, took me so long to unlearn and get back to that place, but we're all born with that. So, and then actually where granola butter came from was, you know, I had restricted peanut butter, almond butter, all these spreads for so long. Cause I was terrified of the calories and, uh, air quotes. Uh, <laughs> and so as I started to add those back in, I just, I really had a hard time digesting them. And, you know, the woman I was working with was like, Oh, maybe you should try sunflower seed butter, soy nut butter. There's all these alternatives. And I tried them and I was like, yo, like, this is what people have to eat. Like no shade to these companies. But for me, I was like, Whoa, like, this is not a great option in my opinion. And I didn't even have nut allergies, you know, um, mm-hmm. kids in a nut free school. So I was like, there has to be something better. And so I sort of had this epiphany when I saw, you know, oat milk and oatly coming on the scene. And I was like, Oh, interesting. Like, I wonder if you can do an oat based spread. And then, you know, hundreds and hundreds of iterations later, uh, just me and my Vitamix and my tiny San Francisco kitchen. And then that's where sort of our MVP, you know, our first iteration for our product came from. And that was 2017, end of 2017. And then we launched March, 2018, we launched pre-orders and now we're doing it full time. So yeah, that's sort of the, the base. Yeah. I love that. How it came from such like a, just a deep and close place for you of coming out of, you know, the eating disorder and being in recovery and then thinking like, I want to make food more fun and taste good. I mean, I think back to two, like I definitely had that phase in college where like, I just cared about what is the healthiest. I wasn't like, how did things taste? And you eat so many things like now that I'm like, non-fat cheese is literally the worst thing I've ever eaten in my life. Yeah. You almost get to a point where you, yeah, it's like once you, you can't unsee it. It's like once you see, you know, how ridiculous that was, like I can never go back, you know, even if like I have moments, which I'm sure lots of people do in their recovery where it's like, you know, you, those thoughts are always there, but it's like whether or not you follow them or whether or not you respond to them or, you know but it's like these things come up. And in the past I would just, you know, yeah, I would follow them or think they're the truth. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, like I, you know, respect my taste buds way too much to ever like do that to them again. It's just crazy. I know. So you started in your own kitchen, just experimenting. And then what happened next? Yeah, I know. It's so, I mean, yeah, really grassroots, uh, started in my kitchen. And at the time, as I mentioned, you know, I was working in tech. I loved my job in tech. I think a lot of people, you know, you hear on how I built this or all these entrepreneur shows where it's like, oh, I had a dead end, you know, dead end job. I hated my nine to five. I loved my nine to five. Like I had a great job, great company, amazing benefits. Uh, I was getting paid, you know, well, obviously working in tech. And 
it was really scary for me leaving all that, to be completely honest with you. Like the scariest thing I've ever done in the history of our business wasn't going on Shark Tank, wasn't, you know, <laughs> pitching the CEO of Mondelez, you know, who owns Oreo. Like all those moments were nothing compared to leaving my full-time job and jumping in with two feet to start this business. Because when you're there, like no one knows your product. There's no, you know, the odds are so stacked against you. And I'd never done anything like this before. So I really was, you know, just, again, I was that pre-med mindset of like, I need stability. I need predictability. And that was just the complete opposite of what I was doing. But I think there was this little voice inside me that was like, you have a great job with like this tech company, but you're, it's not fulfilling for you. You know, you're working for someone else's dream. And yeah, there was just that little truth, that little voice that was like, you know, go for it. Like, what do you have to lose? You can always go back to tech, you know, it's always going to be there. You have a college degree. And so I, I really felt like I don't have kids, you know, I don't have a lot of responsibilities. Like why not just go for it? I'm in my twenties. Yeah. So that, that was, sorry, I jumped ahead a little, but once we had that first initial idea for granola butter and that sort of like recipe that I thought was somewhat sellable, I quickly realized I love food, right? I, you know, I'm okay at making food, but I needed someone who had this culinary expertise and know-how because scaling up a recipe at, at mass is very different from just whipping something up in your kitchen for yes. a dinner So it was interesting and sort of serendipitous because I didn't really know anyone in my network who was a chef at that time. Obviously now being in the food industry, I know a lot of people, but back then I was like, I don't know who to even, you know, tap. Like maybe we could just get someone who could consult for us. And I had a trip planned to Paris with my partner, Eric, which sounds very bougie. We, we had never gone to Paris before we went on, on points because he was a consultant. And so we're in Paris and we're talking about this idea and, you know, he's also working full-time as a consultant and he's liking his job. And we're just like, well, who can we, you know, talk about this, but we're still kind of exploring it. And he was like, oh my gosh, I went to summer camp growing up with this guy named Ari who is actually working, I think he just opened a restaurant in Paris and I think he lives here now. And we were like, oh my God, no way. Like, let's hit him up. So then we like grabbed drinks with Ari. We pitch him on this idea and Ari was so burned out on the restaurant industry. I don't know if you know anyone who's worked in fine dining, but- My brother, yeah. Okay, yeah. So I know. know. You know, like, oh, he was a shell of a human. He was like barely getting by you know, basically just surviving on cigarettes and cheap wine. Well, you work, yeah, you work seven days a week. You work like 16 hour days. It's terrible. Yeah. And so he, and he went to culinary school, like very talented, you know, worked at Michelin star restaurants, super amazing chef, but it was just this disillusionment of, you know, this life in Paris being a chef and like, you know, Instagram meeting reality basically. And so he was very ready for something new and he jumped on the opportunity and we were like, okay, like we have this dream team. You know, I was more marketing, branding. Eric, my partner is like, obviously operations. Uh, he's like a jack of all trades. And then Ari is like the culinary side. And so then we were like, should we just explore this and like kind of run with it and see what happens? So we worked, you know, nights and weekends sort of as our side hustle for the first year, I would say. So really 2018 to 2019, I was just doing it when I had time. I was still working my full-time job and Ari had moved back to San Diego, which is actually where he's also from as well as myself. And then, but Eric and I were still living up in San Francisco. So I remember we would fly down like every weekend, pretty much 
to help Ari do production, you know, make the product. And at this time we were just fulfilling like pre-orders and just kind of like friends and family. And we were just honestly had no idea what we were doing. And like our demand was so wildly, wildly fluctuate because like you're just getting off the ground. So those times were honestly like the hardest, but also the best memories of my life because we were just like, you know, there'd be no orders. And then I remember we're in the kitchen till like 3 a.m. for like a whole weekend. And then I had to like fly back and go straight to work. Like oh it was craziness. And, you know, finally we get kind of our first break with Press Juicery, which is, if you guys don't know, is like a nationwide juice chain, but they also have this like frozen yogurt called their freeze. And it's like made out of almond milk, I think. And they're pretty I've only big. seen it on Instagram. Yeah. Experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're pretty big. And I remember reaching out actually to their editor because they have a online publication called the chalkboard magazine. And this was like right when we launched pre-orders and I was like, Hey, like there's this new product that we're launching. And I just wanted her to feature us like in there as an article. And <laughs> what I get back is an email from their head of R and D that's like, Hey, can you send us some samples? Like we really actually, you know, are interested in doing like a topping on our freeze. And we were like, oh, random. Okay. And then it turned out to be our first huge account, you know, we're still like one of our, you know, they're a big account for us. And then shortly thereafter, we got into Whole Foods, which, you know, was really when I left my full-time job because between pressed and Whole Foods, like it was just impossible to do both. And I also felt a little bit more stability of like, okay, you know, I think Whole Foods was a little bit of validation for me of, like, all right, I could potentially do this full-time. And then once I left my full-time job, I was like, how did I ever do this part-time? Like, it feels like I'm I'm doing it overtime. So (laughs) anyways, but yeah, that was uh, sort of the the early days and the beginning. Yeah. That's, we can talk more about that. I love that. Yeah. I, I am very curious to know, like, you know, we go into the grocery store and we just see stuff there and never really think about like, how did it even get there? So what is that like? Like, saying, okay, I want my, my product in whole foods. How do you do that? I know. Yeah. A lot of people don't really realize the process. And I think what actually helped us was my naivete and not knowing the food industry, because I, you know, coming from tech, I had no idea there was brokers, distributors. Like I didn't know anything about it. So what I did, which I felt like was what anyone would do is I went on LinkedIn and I, you know, found the Whole Foods buyer for the Southern California region. And I figured out her name, but obviously I couldn't find her email. So then I just started typing in like different variations, of you know, first letter dot last name at wholefoods.com, first name dot last name. And then finally, I just didn't get a bounce back. And I was like, maybe that went through. And then a few months went by, I didn't hear anything. And I was like, oh, that was probably the wrong email. Then I got an email back and she was like, this is super interesting. Like, I'd love to try samples. And I was like, oh, sweet. Okay. So this was the right email. <laughs> and then sent samples, didn't hear anything back for another few months. The whole retail process, by the way, is like such a long, it's just like a long game. And I was like, oh, she hated it. You know, like we're never getting into Whole Foods. And we were actually on our way to Expo West, like our first food show. We're in the Uber and I get the email that was like, hey, you know, we love your product. We want to start you and test you in 50 whole food stores in the Southern Pacific region, which is like SoCal, Hawaii, Arizona, et cetera. And I was freaking out. I was like, I have no idea how retail works, but like, we're doing it and we're going (laughs) to go for it. And like, we're going to figure it out as we go. But typically how someone normally gets into whole foods or any store, you know, 
it's, they're all different, but it's not like that. Um, (laughs) especially, especially for some of the bigger stores, like say target or, uh, you know, Walmart at at a Mm -hmm. big scale, like you have, usually you pay a broker, which is someone who, cause if you think about these buyers, like imagine just getting bombarded by all these potential food brands, like all day long, they just, they, there's not enough hours in the day. So what they do instead is they'll meet with these brokers, which will, you know, you pay them four to 5% of your sales or a retainer, depending on what your sales are. And then they'll go in and they represent your brand and they essentially will come, you know, they have meetings with the buyers and they're like, Hey, here's a list of like 12 brands that I'm representing. And it's just like, it makes it more efficient for the buyer. But then the downside to that is the buyer doesn't get to hear your story from you, the founder, you know, so there's pros and cons. And I think it really depends on the scale and the size of your brand and the retailer you're trying to get into. There's also distributors, which, you know, for example, like with Whole Foods, you're not going to directly ship your product to, you know, all, I don't even know how many stores they have now. I think over 400, but that would be like a logistical nightmare. So what we do is, you know, there's different distribution centers and there's different distributors. So like we'll build a pallet at our warehouse and then this huge truck will come pick up the pallets and then take it to all the distribution centers. And then, you know, the Whole Foods trucks or they'll take it to all the individual Whole Foods. So it's like, there's a lot of kind of moving pieces and parts behind the scenes. Another aspect that I didn't know happened in the retail world is called merchandisers. So especially if you have a high velocity product, which basically means a product that moves off the shelves really quickly, like a beverage, like a ready to drink beverage. Trying to think what else, maybe what's another fast moving category. That's yeah, bars, like protein bars. Then, you know, you kind of look at the shelf and, especially for busy stores, you know, let's just keep with the whole foods example, like the people working there, obviously they're kind of tidying the shelves, but it's really up to you as the brand to make sure that your product's in stock, first of all. So if you're, you know, having a demo or you're sampling products, you have to make sure your product's in stock. Also, uh, if your product's on sale, like sometimes, you know, you'll pay to have your product be on sale and then you'll go into the store and it's like the sale tag isn't up. And again, it's like, it's nothing against these retailers, but they just have so many products. So you have to pay a merchandiser who works for you to make sure that your products, like everything is just going according to plan basically. Um, yeah. So that's why it's like retail is expensive. And I think like, we're not in target. We're not in Walmart, like Costco. Those are definitely, I think down the line for us, but it really is a long game. And I think we started with D to C and, you know, e-commerce being, and it's still our biggest channel. And I'm really glad we did because that helped fund our retail game. Because a lot of times, you know, brands will go under because they invest all this money. Say it's like, you know, Target comes to you. They're like, oh, we want you in all like say 1200 stores and you're a small brand and you see the shiny opportunity. You're like, yeah, I want to be in Target. And then no one knows who you are. No one knows what your product is. And just being on the shelves, you think it's enough to get you, you know, off the shelves. It's not like the easiest thing is getting on the shelves. The hardest Mm. thing is getting off the shelves. And that's what you want as a brand. Cause you know, these retailers are savage. Like if you don't get off, if you don't move off the shelf, then they're going to cut you. So it's a lot of pressure once you're on the shelves. And so that's why the brands that do the best are usually the brands that are really well-funded or just have like a very cult-like following because yeah, it's just expensive, you know, to, to be in retail, but it's obviously where you want to be because people don't want to go to like a million different websites to do their grocery shopping. So you kind of have to be where people are. 
Did you know that kids eat 1,095 meals a year? Ah, and if you include snacks, it's more like 4 trillion meals a year. (laughs) And the best part is that we parents have the grand honor of making sure that they're fed each and every one. Honestly, that responsibility kind of sucks sometimes, but we're here with some real help and camaraderie too. We're Stacey and Megan, hosts of Didn't I Just Feed You, a weekly podcast that gets real about what it takes to feed our families. We are two longtime food professionals who between us have worked on five cookbooks, two TV shows, countless stories for publications like Better Homes and Gardens, Every Day with Rachel Ray, Epicurious, and TheKitchen.com. And between us, we also parent four kids between the ages of 7 and 15. Despite all of this work experience, at the end of the day, we too are just two working parents who also get tired of making meals happen at home. Tune in to Didn't I Just Feed You for meal inspiration, kitchen tricks, product recommendations, and big laughs from two moms who get it. From how to turn nachos into a family dinner to what you should do when you don't feel like cooking, we've got you covered. Listen and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We're also at Didn't I Just Feed You on all social. Well, I want to back up for a second because we went from like making granola butter in your kitchen to like shipping out pallets to just distribution centers. So like at what point, like how did you figure out somewhere to make it? And like, how do you, I'm picturing like giant mixing bowls and like, how do you scale that? Totally. I know. Yeah. Sorry. I jumped ahead a little. (laughs) Um, Uh, yeah, that's how it felt as we were growing too. It's like, oh, we're going to need a bigger boat. Um, no, but actually our growth was pretty, pretty just, you know, stead, like steady and organic. You know, there's lots of companies that, and there's no right or wrong way to, to grow a business, but there's lots of food companies that will raise millions of dollars before they launch. And then just, you know, they'll just skyrocket. Like, you know, one of the, one of our investors is the founder of Smart Suites. And, you know, they got to a hundred million in sales in four years. And like, that's insane. It's so fast. And just thinking about that scale compared to, you know, how we've been growing. I'm like, I can't even imagine what that would be like. It would just be like holding on for dear life. Um, You know, what we've been doing feels fast. So yeah, I think, you know, how we started was, as I mentioned, that commissary kitchen in San Diego. So Eric and Ari and I made the first hundred thousand jars ourselves by hand in Vitamixes, which... I like still have back pain from it. Um, And then we realized like, okay, you know, we need to work on growing the business. Like we, we need, we need help basically. Uh, And my parents and friends were so kind to, you know, come in and help, but it's like, you need to pay someone. So then we started hiring some help there. And then we grew into a bigger facility still in San Diego. We had about 3000 square feet and that just quickly became much too small for us. And so we looked at LA, we looked at San Diego and just the cost per square foot of real estate down there is so insane. And we were like, I don't know how food companies do it. Like, I don't know how you have your manufacturing in California. It just, it doesn't make sense. So to give you some context, like just for example of how much cheaper it is where we are now in Philly, we have almost 12,000 square feet and we're paying the same amount in rent as we did in San Diego for our 3000 square foot facility. So gosh, yeah, like four times the space, which is wild. And so, you know, now we have 12,000 square feet, you know, we're honestly busting at the seams at our current place again. And I think like, you know, we could have gone to a co-packer, which is what a lot of food companies do, which basically just means you pay someone else to make your product for you. And these people are professional, you know, manufacturing But for us, you know, no one had ever done a granola butter before there. A lot of the machinery that we use is obviously what nut butter 
co-packers or nut butter producers use, but like we couldn't use a nut butter co-packer because our product's nut free. So then we were like, okay, maybe we could outsource like the granola baking, but then a lot of the granola co-packers also, you know, granola has nuts. Yeah. We were kind of, you know, shit out of luck. And so we were like, okay, I guess we're just going to keep manufacturing it ourselves. So it really was out of necessity. Like we never planned to, you know, build a factory because it like part, you know, kind of sucks. Like you're building two different businesses. So we have a production team of about, you know, 25 people now. And then we have like the business team. And so it's like managing both of those. And, you know, when shit breaks, like Eric and Ari and I have to fix it. Like, it's not, we don't, you know, we don't know, like we're just figuring it out as we go. So I think that has been a huge challenge, but it's also been our biggest blessing, you know, at times too, with like, when you're working with a co-packer, you're on their timeline, you know? And especially if you're not, like you said, you know, craft foods or their biggest client, they're going to be like, sorry, like you need more product, but we got to work on this account, you know? So they don't prioritize you often. And with COVID and supply chain issues, like just owning your own manufacturing has been very nice for us lately. So there's pros and cons to everything. Yeah. Yeah. I do have, I have a lot of respect for you though, with just owning the actual stuff. Like I have, you know, if my website breaks, it's like, oh no, my website's broken or whatever, but it's so different than like managing so many physical moving parts. Right. Yeah. That, yeah, that's like a big thing. And, and managing people, you know, it's like most food companies with the amount of like sales that we're doing right now, like they wouldn't have, you know, 30 plus employees. Cause as a food company, if you're not doing your own manufacturing, like you don't need that many. It's like a VP of sales marketing. Like you don't need that many people. So yeah, it's like, you know, managing, managing humans is the hardest part of running a business like that personalities and, and human (laughs) relations, like the hardest thing. So I think that has been challenging, but obviously we've learned a lot as we've gone. Um, And then it's been cool too. Cause like we do a lot of fun pop-up, you know, seasonal flavors and we're able to because with a co-packer, like the lead times are so long, you know, they're like, oh, you know, we need a few months lead time. And so if you don't plan that far ahead, you're kind of, again, like shit out of luck. So it's nice. Cause we can be like, oh, let's do a s'mores flavor next week. And we could just, I mean, obviously you have to order ingredients, but like we have a lot quicker, we can be more nimble. Yes. Okay. I love chocolate. I love cookie dough. I love them all. But you guys, I love that you do that with like the different flavors and stuff. Cause I'm always like, Ooh, what's new. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. I know. And we have, um, yeah, we have lots of fun stuff coming up in the pipeline too. But yeah, I think if like word to the wise, if anyone's wanting to do a food company, every product is different. Like if you're making something that's a commodity, like a protein bar, for example, definitely outsource it, like outsource it to people that are professionals. They know what they're doing. But if you're making something new and that does, you know, that co-packer doesn't exist, like maybe it is best and it is, you know, in your best interest to do it yourself because then that's sort of your, yeah, you're kind of building your own moat, if that makes sense. Well, I know that the families with nut allergies, I'm sure they very much appreciate that they know for a fact that your facility is nut free. That's true. Yeah, that is a big, yeah, we get a lot, a lot of people that are excited about that. So that's a good value prop. (laughs) Yes. And it's, you know, I'm always recommending y'all for school sandwiches and things. So many schools are nut free. I know. Yeah. That was, I mean, that was wild. Like, again, as I mentioned, like I created this just for my own 
need. And I don't have kids yet, but like the moms that from the get-go that just were coming moms and dads were coming in and we're just like, Oh my gosh, like my kids won't eat sun butter. Like I'm literally packing them cheese sandwiches. Like moms were telling me the craziest stuff they were packing their kids. <laughs> and they're like, they, they won't eat anything. And like, this is the only thing they'll eat. And I was like, Oh wow. So that was a need I didn't even realize existed at the beginning. And then now it's obviously like one of our biggest customer bases. Yeah, I I absolutely love that cuz like you said there are other options but yours is the best tasting option. I mean, I'm biased, but yeah, I agree. <laughs> what would you say is something that might surprise people about running your business? Ooh, yes, so many things. I think let's see. I think the mental health side like to speak to that aspect the bigger that we've gotten, the lonelier I've gotten. And that sounds odd. I think to a lot of people, especially as like, you know, you only see the highlight reel on social media and I try to keep it like pretty real on social media and not just show the highlight reel. But of course it's like, even the stuff I show that's real, it's like somewhat filtered and curated. Cause like, you know, yeah. it's social media, but I, yeah, I think it's been really more challenging on the mental health side. I see two different therapists <laughs> since starting. I never went to therapy before starting this business. And it's been the biggest, again, like such a blessing and such a, you know, a uh, gift in disguise because I actually have learned a lot about myself along the way out of, you know, necessity. But I think, yeah, there's this weird element of loneliness that comes, you know, and I've, my two co-founders are amazing. Obviously one of them is my life partner. And, but even then it's like, no one really understands the magnitude of what you're going through, even other founders and even other female founders. And so it's hard, you know, like I'll get together with my friends or like my family and they want to kind of support you, but there's just this element of loneliness that you feel. And especially I think in the beginning, I was, I just didn't do anything social for a really long time because we were working so hard for so many years. And I just felt like I missed out on a lot. And, you know, yeah, that I think kind of the sacrifice is, is challenging, but then, you know, you're also building something incredible. And so, yeah, it's like a, a bittersweet kind of silver lining, but that was something I wasn't expecting that kind of that loneliness piece. Do you think that that will shift as you like, you know, you spent so much time getting your business up and running and off the ground. Like, do you see mm. potential for that to shift? Yeah, definitely. Like Eric and I and Ari, our third co-founder, we actually just came back from a music festival in Belgium. I um, saw that looked yeah, so fun. Ago, this, like, it was so funny because literally a day or two after we got back, we had these investors, potential investors fly in and, you know, we like had to move the meeting because like of our music festival. And I was like, oh my God, they probably think we like do this all the time. It's so <laughs> embarrassing. And I like told her, I was like, we never do this. Like, you know, and it was true. Like we literally never do anything fun. And I think it got to the point where it's like, okay, this is the first second. Like we have a team, you know, like we have, we could breathe a little, like we could do something fun. And it just felt like we were these fish out of water, but it almost was this thing that started as a joke where we were like, what if we went to this? Like, I've always wanted to go. I'm huge, like EDM, like electric music fan. And I've always wanted to go to Tomorrowland. And one of my girlfriends, she's a DJ and she was playing and I was like, oh my God, like, I just want to go. And it started as a joke. Like, what if we all went? And we were like, there's no way we can't all three be gone at the same time. Like, that's crazy. And then we're like, what if we could, like, what if we went and we did, and it was seriously so needed. Like 
I can't tell you just how medicinal it was like just, you know, going to, it sounds so dumb, like going to music festival, but I think when you only relate to people in like one aspect, you know, it's just so helpful to, to connect in a different way. And just, yeah, personally, it was so nice. So I think to answer your question for me, like I definitely am working on work-life balance, a big realization that I had actually at Tomorrowland, which sounds so dumb, but um, (laughs) Eric and I have been dating for almost a decade and, you know, all my friends are getting engaged and getting married and having babies. And like, I was always just like, you know, I'm going through like the egg freezing thing. And I just felt like I was pushing my life down, like kicking a can down the road of like, okay, we'll get engaged after we sell the business. We'll have kit, like all life will happen. Like after this business is over. And when we were at Tomorrowland, we were like, oh my gosh, like we used to do this all the time. We we can still have fun while we're building this business, you know? And I think it, so it kind of triggered something in me of like, oh, like I could plan a wedding, you know? And I kept telling myself like, oh, I don't want to get married. Like meh. And I think I was just suppressing kind of bringing it full circle to like, you know, same thing with food where I, you know, was afraid to even feel a craving. I was just like pushing it away before it even came up. And so then Eric and I had this like really beautiful conversation about, you know, maybe we do want to get engaged soon. And like, maybe we do feel ready for that. And how fun would it be to actually, you know, plan a wedding, our style, which for me looks like a wedding in Ibiza or, you know, somewhere in Europe, something super fun while we're building this business. Like why, why is that not an option. So yeah, it kind of just like opened the doors to having fun and enjoying the journey along the way, which is, you know, easier said than done, but (laughs) I love that. I do think that a lot of people assume that when you're an entrepreneur, that you have more flexibility than the average person, but you do have so much responsibility on your shoulders too. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I like, I know, I, I think it's different depending on what kind of business or what kind of entrepreneur you are, like maybe, you know, if I was just doing the influencer thing, I definitely would have way more flexibility. And I would like, I don't know. I feel like that a lot of influencers like say it's one of the hardest things they've ever done. I think it's the easiest job I've ever had. (laughs) Personally, like compared to running a business, I'm like, oh my God, this is so easy. But everyone's experience is different. But yeah, I think maybe as we grow, there will be more flexibility. And so this is sort of just, dipping my toe in that water. Cause a lot of it too, is just like, you know, operating out of an old paradigm of like, Oh, we always used to just grind and work our asses off in the beginning, but it's not, it's not sustainable. And, you know, I don't want to glamorize being a workaholic. Cause that's just like, it's not healthy for anyone. So I think just reframing and kind of practicing the work-life balance, maybe through planning a wedding is an interesting <laughs> way to do it, but it really is like just challenging my my limiting beliefs on that. Yeah. I think for me, I noticed the more that, I mean, a wedding is a big thing to put on the calendar, but even just anything like putting it on the calendar, even if it's fun, like, I feel like sometimes you just have to do that to make yourself actually do it. Oh, totally. I know. And it's, I know it's so sad too. Like I, that my default is like being a robot and like working all the time. Um, I was talking to a girlfriend about this, but it's true. And then you plan something fun. You're like, Oh my gosh, like, I'm so happy I did that. So yeah, it's just like, and, and the most, like the irony isn't lost on me that, you know, our mission and our goal with building this company or with this company 
is helping people find like joy and play and fun and basically like tapping back into your inner child. And then like, here I am like in the background building this thing. And I'm like, never having fun. <laughs> and I was like, this is so ironic. Um, so yeah, that's why I'm especially working on it. Cause I'm like, I need to set, I need to lead by my actions of like, <laughs> having more fun. Yes. I love though, even when you just, you're like doing your stories with you dancing and just like being in your element. I think that's so cool. Totally. Yeah. The dancing and the movement piece for me has been so healing. And I think I've actually kind of been on this healing journey in tandem with building the business, which has been really interesting. Like just the self healing and how that sort of, you know, permeates into obviously being a leader and a CEO and and all of that. But yeah, the, just that like, you know, freedom to just move my body and not being in front of a mirror and not being choreographed and just like letting it lead the way that has been hands down, like one of the biggest and cheapest, um, <laughs> like doing things that I've done for myself, which is cool. Ali, I love getting to hear the behind the scenes before we go. Will you tell people like, where they can find Oat House. And we didn't even do like a summary of what you have to offer. So tell them what they can get and where. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, I didn't really touch, I guess, I mean, I kind of did. But yeah, granola butter, it's the world's first oat-based spread. We have tons of flavors. We just launched in Sprouts. So the cookie dough flavor that you mentioned is in Sprouts with the chocolate chips. And then Whole Foods, Paris Teeter, Fresh Market, Thrive Market. Yeah, well, there's a whole list on our website, but and then my Instagram is just my name, Allie Bonner. Uh, and then Oat House is just oat.house. So yeah, it. thank you for having me. I'm so, this was so fun. This was great. Man, Allie was just so candid and honest and open with us. And I love that she helped to shed some light on the reality of the behind the scenes and that, you know, social media is just a highlight reel. And I know we know that, but it's still always great to hear that from people to be like, listen, things aren't always sunshine and roses. She absolutely loves what she does, but there's still those challenges there too. So I hope you enjoyed hearing from her as much as I did, and I'll chat with you soon. 